0: This is the Property Renovation Podcast where you hear the very best tips and advice on renovating or building your home from professionals in the industry and speaking to real homeowners themselves. My name's James Woodham, I'm the founder of the Property Renovation Podcast and together with the help of my team, we have just one mission to provide you with valuable advice for free. We think the construction industry needs a shake up and anyone that you hire needs to provide you with honesty and clarity. Whilst doing a professional job, listening to our podcast empowers our listeners with knowledge and helps make that happen. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy the show. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Property Renovation Podcast. Before I tell you about today's episode, I'd like to say that I hope our American listeners had a super. Uh, Thanksgiving, and that you got to spend time with your family and just take that time off of work for, for once in the year um, and start to build some more memories with your loved ones. Um, did anyone manage to buy or get a good discount for that Black Friday? That's a super crazy day. Um, some mad offers on the internet as well. I managed to buy a wireless... Um, charger for my mobile phone and a Hoover of all things. So, uh, yeah, we'll see how that goes when it arrives. Um, it's about that time of the year when we actually start to wind down and start thinking about plans for Christmas and traveling um, who we're going to spend it with and what we're going to buy. Um, so, you know, you're probably looking out for some gifts on online and stuff like that. Um, and the perfect gift for anyone, I think, buying a property, maybe you've got your son, daughter, uh, your grandchildren buying their first property. Uh, one of the best things that you can do is make sure that they save money and time. Um, and we've got a... Uh, excellent product that is available at www.akivatoolkit.com, A-K-I-V-A. It's essentially 10 documents that you can download, uh, which empowers you with the education to do your first property, to avoid all of the mistakes that you can make Uh, which in turn cost you a lot more money. Um, You can get on with your builders a lot better and you can just prepare because that's one of the uh, strongest things you need is preparation in any project before you start it. So go to akivatoolkit.com to get your 10 documents. You can get the first one free um, and just check it out. Um, It's definitely uh, satisfied and helped hundreds of people across the UK. So uh, check it out. Okay, now into this week's episode. Um, it's part two of three episodes that are going out um, from an amazing company called Development Discovery, and this time I'm speaking with Alan Christie, who's another one of the directors. Uh, super knowledgeable. Uh, they just had a they just recently held a property cinema called uh, Twin Peaks Summit. Uh, which Pauline was talking about, actually, in the first episode, episode number 70. Um, so on this one, I'm actually going a lot deeper into the topic of property development with Alan, uh, and we're on a, on a much larger scale. So um, I found it very interesting. Like I said, he's very knowledgeable. He's been doing it for many, many, many years, um, and he's got a lot of value bombs. For anyone that's thinking about Um, going into property development maybe you're in property development and you want to uh, go on it on a much larger scale Uh, so he actually talks about the risks um, and how to avoid those risks so that you don't end up losing money Um, and just what to be prepared for actually so um, I hope you enjoy it Uh, before we go into the episode I hope that you are enjoying the content that we're putting out on the podcast if you do Please take just one or two minutes to leave us a review on iTunes. Um, reviews actually, uh, make other people that are thinking about listening to the podcast. Uh, make that decision to listen to it um it kicks us up the rankings as well which means that we get to see uh we get exposed to more and more people which in turn means that they will become knowledgeable they save a lot more money and time as well and this is exactly what we're trying to do so um yeah enjoy the episode thanks very much so alan nice to meet you thank you for coming nice on the podcast. You. yeah pleasure um,
1: you've just been at the summit. Can you say that? We had a fantastic that? thing. Yeah, it was really good actually. Um, we had more people there than we thought we were going to have, and yeah. uh, everybody engaged really well. So, speakers were really diverse, really diverse group, and it was interesting from that point of view because anything that we've done like that before has been just pure property related. Mm-hmm. In fact, mm-hmm. largely just pure development related. Um, so this time we heard much more about the business side of the property development business, okay. or property business and whole. So, yeah, there's a lot of really good feedback from it as well. Some good networking opportunities. Great. Yeah, I mean, these things are always good. You never know who you're going to bump into. Yeah. You know, actually, one of the first things that I, I learned, because I didn't get into property networking per se, and I kind of just did things on my own mm. um, up until about 2015. And one of the first things that I heard was, you never know who you're going to sit beside, and you know your next JV partner could be sat right beside you. Um, stuff like that. Mm. You don't know where the money is, and all that kind of stuff. Isn't it? I thought, what oh, rubbish. You know, that's just not going to be true. And yet, I have found it to be true so many times. And I say that uh, often. And you know, there are some people who's, when you say it to, them, they still roll their eyes because they think, yeah, don't really believe it. But time and time again, when you put yourself in that position, it's amazing what you get back out of it is it the same thing you're saying
0: um, it's not what you know but it's who you know yeah I think I think, yeah. you, I think you've got to know
1: a lot of stuff anyway <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be stupid and well connected it's better off to be intelligent, smart understand what it is that you're doing or know people who know what they're doing that you can connect with but in that basis who you know is really important as well absolutely good okay yeah.
0: so Alan tell us a little bit about your background how did you get into property development
1: um, without taking a long story and taking a long time just to give you short kind of highlights of it. I guess first thing for me was I learnt, I learnt a bit about property development whilst I was uh, working. I uh, worked in a in a care home business mm-hmm. um, and it was a sort of business development role. Uh, and so I learnt kind of how to, how to build care homes effectively, yeah. how to put that sort of thing together as a package. And when I came out of that business, um, one of the first things that I the only thing that I've done since has been property development. So I didn't. I was very clear when I came out of that business. Didn't want to work for anybody else again. Um, I had a great experience with with some really interesting people. But in coming out of it, I wanted to kind of chart my own path. Right. And so property development was the way. I, I, it looked to me like a really reliable way of doing something that was fun, doing something that was really lasting. Mm-hmm. And and you know, there's a legacy aspect in this that is um, is probably one of the key drivers. For me in in property development, um, but, and I, we'll maybe get a chance to come back to that sure. because it's something I'd like to I'd like to talk to you about. But um, from there, I got into doing um, small projects. First project I did was was um, eleven flats, and I was so rubbish, and, and I made every mistake that you could that you could make. But I was also equally lucky. Because that was in the nineties, we were just coming out of recession, yeah. and the market was just starting to pick up. Mm-hmm. And so, I think had it been more crap, I would have probably made more money of it if I'd taken even longer. But it's not a place you want to be. You don't want to have to rely on the market to to actually make you your money. You want to, you know, choose your choose your projects wisely, and then be really efficient in the execution phase. And then, and, and again, have a compelling product and offer mm. that you can that you can actually move on and sell. And so. From there, I started doing other similar type, style projects. Gradually, grew in scale. Um, where I would say now my kind of core, my, my sweet spot now is, is kind of I've always done primarily residential. I've done some bits of industrial, some bits of commercial, but by and large, it's been it's been residential. That's what I understand. Um, and and I would say my sweet spot is somewhere between thirty and fifty houses on an estate. So to create a I say ideally for families. Now we've got. We've got a range of projects that we're doing just now that fit in that sweet spot. We've got some that are smaller. We've got a couple that are bigger. But generally speaking, when I when I look at these things, I think that number is very good. You know, gather from my accent, I'm not sort of from Englandshire. I'm from up in Scotland, and uh, you know, so most of my development experience has been based up there. Although since 2015, I've been based in here since we, you know, started talking about kicking off development discovery and then. Actually, building that thing out and then running with it—that's where we are now. And sorry, you—you you mentioned that you—you've—you
0: started on eleven flats. Yeah. That's a big risky thing in in my mind. But I mean, how? Why did you want to? Did did you not want to start uh, with a much smaller amount of flats, or was just yeah. this 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 was the opportunity
1: given to so, you? So so I, I have a kind of view. No, yeah. it wasn't. So the opportunity wasn't given. It was it was absolutely found and put together Okay, and, and I think that is one of the things that you from, from a development perspective pure to, you know, it's so I always say, so if you take the development life cycle it starts at A and ends at Z mm. so people think about, when they think about property development they think about the fact that you go and build things well for me, building is T to W on the scale it's, it's, it's a very small part of what you do, the bit where you make all your money is the bit up to that point in, in terms of taking some form of land or a building, and seeing a different use for it. Okay. So, imagining a use beyond
0: what it currently is. So, Alan, you mentioned um, about the first property you, you did was 11 uh, flats. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, in my mind, I find that quite risky uh, as your first one, um, but can you just talk, why did you choose
1: that one, or you know, what was the opportunity there? Well, I, so, so there's there's a couple of things about this that that are interesting, based on if I could pick up the things that you've said there. Sure. Because I'd probably take a slightly counter view yeah, to that. So, um, if you're thinking that it would have been better if you went for maybe one or two or three or four or something like that, mm. so to mm-hmm. my that's a far riskier proposition than 11. And 11 is a far riskier proposition than 30. And 30 is probably, you know, I, I think is a is a, a fairly a fairly robust uh, certain number but, but to unpack that for you so if if you you take uh, take it as a given um, then every development project no matter how much you do workwise wise beforehand it's only when you get started on the site that you can truly truly understand there will be some things that will go wrong okay, okay. They're unknown. They're probably known unknowns. You, you you know they're going to be there, but you don't know what they are. It may well be that you find, you know, I'll give you some examples. It may, it may well be that you find an ar- archaeological artefact. Like hmm. some of the stuff I am find down here, in because because of course Romans didn't get as far as Scotland, right? We kind <laughs> of uh, put them back. Yeah. So, but they they kind of took over, and, and so areas of the, the country that we really like developing and. Um, the large Roman presence there. So one of the things that we've got to be away from, aware of, is that when we start digging on sites, that you have, you, you may stumble across something here that can throw your project completely sideways. You, yeah. You'll do reports and investigations and all the rest of it beforehand, but those are we'll take this bit and we'll dig a trench and we'll have a look, see what we find. Sure. And we'll maybe do two or three trenches at a big site. Mm. You're not actually doing a trench on every single house that you're building and because otherwise you're building it, you haven't found it. So it's only when you're in there that you, you can actually you can, you can can get some things. Similarly, if it's a building that you're converting, you will do an, an intrusive asbestos survey as part of the pre-works that you need to do before you start. Mm-hmm. So that you understand what you're up against. But again, you're not going to knock you're not going to knock down every wall and have a look at it you're going to take samples you might find as you get into the project the one that i have doing right now we, we've we kind of we put in something like um £13,000 to deal with the asbestos because that's what the r- report suggested plus a contingency right and we've ended up busting that way about double that that we spent crazy and so that is and in a small project when you lose a big chunk of money that way you've nowhere to go yeah you know, so you, you, you kind of base your profit. Most people, when they start off developing, they have a thought that um, I'm sure I can get it done for that much, rather than robustly going out to market and setting actual fixed price contracts and mm-hmm. them. They, they, you know, I've heard that we can build this for a thousand pound a foot, thousand pound a meter, Yeah. or something like that, because people have that sort of number in their head. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I know that, okay, the, the kind of sale price in the area, when I look at right move, it says that I can sell it for 3000 pounds But actually, I'm pretty certain that I'll get a premium on my new build here, so I'll be able to sell it for £3.3. Okay. So you've got all these assumptions that go in that are optimistic. Mm. And and people get excited about, about development from that perspective. Reality is, you know, generally speaking, you, things cost you more and you end up getting less, so you've got to make sure your project is robust. And and the way that you, and more numbers make a project more robust. It means when when things do go wrong, as they always will, it doesn't matter how experienced you are, mm-hmm. something will always come up and bite you. When they do, if you've gone about your work properly and diligently, then you've got the scope in there that you can your profit is reduced slightly as opposed to being wiped out or even actually. Yeah, you know, and so and so <clears throat> I guess for me I thought very early on that the 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 sort of fewer units that you had mm. I've done I've done some really small sites. I remember mean, I had three townhouses um on the harbour side at St Andrews, but mm-hmm. I did that because it was an area I wanted to be in and and it was it was quite a challenging site. So I was able to, you know, the, the process of doing that one was really satisfying. Right. And and it was in a really historic area of St Andrews, so it was a real really interesting project and it made great money. If you could now, if you could name or rank
0: three of your best properties um, from properties of projects. Projects okay. best best to worst. Tell us about them and why.
1: Okay. Um, the worst project that I that I've done, mm-hmm. and we talk about that one first and get the pain out of the way okay. first. Okay. Was <laughs> a was was incidentally a small project, so I had. So two thousand and eight nine was a very traumatic time for anybody who was in development um in, in the in fact anywhere in the world I imagine, but certainly here in the UK. Mm. And so that was a that was a very sort of seminal moment in my life and coming out of the other end of it and I was I sort of did nothing really for a couple of years and then got back into uh developing, mm. and contracting and developing. And the developing part of it I decided that I would do there was a small site that I would I'd take on board and nobody was lending money at that time so you, you know it was I didn't know that there were things, so I, previously I had borrowed from a high street bank I had a facility that I could then kind of use as I pleased and that was life up until 2008 Right um, Nobody was in the development funding space and I didn't know that there were people starting to come into that space in eleven, twelve, thirteen. I'd never really been looking. I'd I'd always worked on assumptions. So one of the things doesn't matter how experienced you are, you don't know what you don't know. True. So if if you have, a, you know, if, if if you've always done something a single way, and you've never thought to look over your shoulder and okay, are there other ways that I could do this? Mm. i never had to. Um, so I I wasn't aware of. The opportunities for um, borrowing cash. So basically, I did some contracting work, made some money, used that money along with some of our own money to buy a development, build the development out. Right. And I thought I'd be really cautious and do it, sale at time, um, and build as I went. But I, I kind of hardly made any money from it. I mean, it washed its face. It was only five units, and it wasn't in the best area. And so it was. You know, there's things that you can say about that. It was just, it was one that I, I did the project that I could afford to fund, okay. as opposed to understanding that there is a way to fund things. Yeah, yeah. And and which I now completely subscribe to and and do totally different now than I've done during that small period of time. So that was rubbish. That was a waste of, you know, probably 18 months of my life to earn from that project next to nothing. Right. Yeah, you know, didn't lose money, but we you know, probably should have made a couple of hundred thousand pounds, probably ended up being about 50. Right. And, um, you know, if that had been the only thing that I'd been doing and had not been in the like, contract and work alongside it, I'd have been better off stacking shells and Azad or something like that, you know, for yeah. the, the financial gain. Sure. Did, didn't really do what we were after. Uh, in terms of best, so so it depends on how you measure that. Okay. So if you measure best in terms of financial then, um, and and nothing else, then I'd probably come up with different projects. Whereas the the, the projects are the ones that I enjoy the most, are the ones that have been where you've needed real creativity to put together mm-hmm. and assemble, and then the thing has worked, and then you've got this legacy thing at the back end of it. So one of the things that you I could I could talk about any number of projects that fit that category. Right. Um, so. Without naming any specific one, but they would all fit into that thirty-fifty house kind of kind of size where you've had to, because um, if if you like with development, you you start off with nothing more than a, nothing more than a vision. So you've got this thought, you know, this this is my process. Maybe not everybody's this is the way that I would, I had typically done it. I would I would think of areas that I wanted to be in, and then I would go and find in there a piece of a piece of land, typically edge of settlement. Because if you understand one of the key things that you need to understand is how towns and cities grow. Because we, we've we had a, a planning process, planning, laws are, planning law is a dry subject but it's a really interesting subject um, in the respect that it can be quite dry to deliver but when you really get at the nuts and bolts of it we had planning policy in this country dating back to the uh, 19th century but it was just to deal with sanitation mm-hmm. And gradually, that planning policy has changed through time. And it's got us to a point where where it's actually it's much more predictable in terms of what we should be getting out of it. It's all about economic growth. It's all about understanding that it changes all the time, which is, sure, one of the pains of a planning. But um, towns evolve by kind of spreading out. Because as we go through every round, every round of local plan review, that kind of happens once every five years, then planning policy determines, so national planning policy determines each individual settlement, how much they need to grow. Mm -hmm. And then you you get the opportunity to promote land during that. There's a a three week consultation period every five years, every three to five years, depending on the area, Used to every five to seven years, that you get to promote a site. And so I love doing that. So you start with a, this is an area I'd I'd like to do something in because of, it could be, it's just a good location. It could be the values are high. It could be that there are, there are perhaps in your mind there are untapped opportunities, or perhaps you know that there is a new employer coming to the area, or it could be anything that you puzzle together and you kind of, you get this picture in your head. Um, and from that, you f- you find your bit of land, you find who owns it, you go and create a create a deal of some description with that owner. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, and, and this is kind of very Scottish centric. So, but the principles apply throughout the UK. Okay. Just have much more experience there. Mm. Um, <clears throat> land in, so taking land from one use class and transforming it into another, it's, that, that's purely creative. I think one of the things that I, I alluded to when we spoke before was, you know, uh, plant, develop, development process, A to Z, the bit that people kind of witness and see is, the, is construction. To me, that's T to W. Okay. It's a very small part of the process. Yeah. The bit that comes before is where you really make your money. So if you can take like a, a field, an agricultural or a fallow field, that may have in its own merit, in its with that use class, agriculture use class. up in Scotland that may, that may have a value of anywhere between, let's say, now ten to thirty thousand pounds an acre, depending on where you are. Okay. Maybe even less than some of the more rural parts. But let's take that as a it's called 20 grand an acre. So, so if you apply your special sauce to that mix, what you can do is you can take that that 20 grand's worth of value for that acre. Mm. And this applies in maybe a site of you know, 3, 4, 5 acres where you can get some decent density in it. Yeah. Now, then you, you might take that now, like in 2006-7, in you were getting, an, up where I live, you were getting that from 20k. You're getting up to a million pounds an acre mm. by putting a decent residential consent on it. Um, so, you may well have this, this pocket of value on a three acre site that where the land value was, you know, the point at which you created your option. Yeah. Um, it might have been 20 grand. You might have added your bit of, of skill and you might take it to a million pounds an acre. So, you know, that, that type of transformation is great, but you've not built a thing at that point. This is just the fault and the, the idea and... This, this is actually, you've taken it through plan, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you've done, so, so effectively you've promoted it through local plan, you've engaged with the planning authority, you've had these discussions and meetings with them, you've, you've brought your planning consultant, your architect, you've mm-hmm. put your team together, mm-hmm. uh, that you need to, to kind of create this. So you've taken the thing that's been in your head, this vision that you've had of what this could become, mm-hmm and you've started to put flesh in the bones okay. and then you've got it through there you've not built a thing at that point point. Mm-hmm. and then beyond that once you've got planning you've then got to go through the, the process of satisfying the, the kind of satisfying building control that what you're going to build complies with build, current building regulations mm-hmm. which are also always changing um. and I could talk about that for hours if you, <laughs> if you had it there but <laughs> suffice to say do these kind of things create create a legacy so pull that all together create a legacy yes it can be very financially rewarding no question once you get to a point where that is not the only thing that you do this for mm-hmm. uh, the biggest kick that you can get for me is going back to some place where maybe 10 years before I had a spark of a thought and then 10 years later you go and you see and um, you see all these homes because homes are such a, you play such a huge part in our psyche and our makeup. You, you remember the home that you were brought up in as a kid. Absolutely. And yeah. That's where all your family's memories are born. The, yeah. the, the home where you raised your family, if you've got a family, that kind of place is much more than bricks and mortar. It's a place where memories are made, it's a place yes. where your own life story starts and evolves from. And so, you know, that's precious. So when you go back to a place and you. You remember, as you do sometimes, um the thoughts that you had at the time when you were putting this together, and then you see kids' bikes outside and you see them out kicking a ball on the street, or you just see people going about their day day life. Um, so that for me is far more rewarding. Or at least at least as rewarding as any financial gain that you get. Yeah. I think that. So that, for me, is something that is. Uh, it's maybe not giving you specific site names, but as a principle, I think it kind of it captures the essence of it. You know, I've done lots of things that are like that, where it's great to drive back. It's great to just. A,
0: I, I can imagine that it's a great achievement to walk around, knowing that these these families have you know, moved in and there's probably schools that have been built all because to of serve, that. To serve that, yeah, yeah absolutely.
1: Yeah. And you create a re- something that is, there's so many things that we do uh, in our life hmm. that have no permanence. You know, you you can do your, you know, great thing we have now, we have this kind of digital archive that you're creating, you're part of creating, this podcast that you create here yeah. digitally will exist forever. Yeah. It'll, it'll exist far beyond... You know, you might not be that easy to find, but that's, that's <laughs> up to your to skills. But, you know, for, for me doing what I do, everything that I put together has a massive amount of permanence in it. So I kind of look at that and think, um, everything that you've built will be there long after I've gone. You know, it, it's, a real, it, it's a real legacy that you leave to create the built environment, I think.
0: Um, what, what are the common steps to acquiring... Um, a development, a land for a development.
1: Well, I guess, I, I guess on that basis, I, I, I probably hinted at it yeah. before, and, and, and said, you know, first of all, you have to, so you you have to understand planning policy and where it's going. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. the first thing. Um, but there are, but you don't need to know that. But you need to know somebody who does. Yeah, right. That's key. Development isn't a one man, isn't a one man team game. You know, it was sorry, it's not a one man sport. It's absolutely a team game. And yeah, that, that's critical. Um, in terms of finding that land then again there's just a thought process that you've got to go through mm-hmm. you, you, but you need to start at the back end of this so it's not what can I build here it's who's going to live here so it's how can I get out of this once I've done it right that's always critical <laughs> because you can always be daft enough to buy any bit of land and build some on it but you know mm-hmm. yeah. it's, it's, it's got to be habitable it's, it's so. got to be a place where people want to yeah. live yeah first and foremost um, so is that identifying the land and, and identifying who owns that land currently mm-hmm. is really important. Um unfortunately, in the UK we've got this, you know, amazing treasure trove of information called the National Land Registry. Mm-hmm. Um which, you know, I, I've spent course, in a very anorakic kind of way, countless days and hours of my life pouring through old sacine records that will date back to twelve hundred nods. It, as land has been granted by, by some, yeah. uh, some ruler to somebody else that stayed in our family all that time. It's, it's remarkable you can trace the lineage of that. In fact, I'll probably, die, I'll probably go slightly off PC, but <laughs> land titles, when you, get, when, you, when you buy a bit of land and you get a title and you see how that land and who owns the rights to those lands from, from origination right the way through and every time it's changed hands, yeah. what that means is you realise you're just part of a process. You do. It's very true. Yeah, that, yeah, that's it. And you, you're part of a historic record. Mm. Um, so you, you, need to understand how, how, how land ownership works in the country, how planning policy works, and then you need to be able to, um, obviously be able to approach the, the owner and structure a deal with them in such a way if they will sell. Mm. Um, so that optimize, and I've always found the easy way to do that is to optimize their return. So you, you know, rather than say, can I buy this bit of land off you twenty grand an acre? Yeah you assume that everybody's buttoned up the back if you do that you might get somebody who does but I found a more successful route is to kind of create something which is, you know, you have this thing it's worth twenty grand at the moment I've got this experience and special sauce over here I could turn this into £1,000,000 an acre you won't get a £1,000,000 an acre for it because I've got to be uh, rewarded for that but I'll give you seven hundred pounds an acre for it you know, and I'll buy it from you at a fair price mm-hmm. and for me I get a nice planning uplift on that which is good, so I generate create wealth for myself. Yep. Um and then if I want to build it out, then I, I have the opportunity of earning from that and obviously creating a legacy. Uh, both of which is important. So these are I would say in terms of acquiring development, these are the key things that you need to understand. Yep. You know, so how does planning policy work? How do you find out who owns it, and how you can actually structure a deal in such a way that it's attractive to the owner. Um and, and an option gives you control, but Disney, so it gives you the the right to acquire when certain conditions are met, but you're not obligated at that point in time. Mm. Now, it used to be when I when I did this right up to 2008, you would generally pay 10 grand a year for an option. So you you'd, you'd buy an option on a bit of land that would cost you 50 grand, right. for a five year option. Okay. And if you wanted to renew that, which you would build in a sort of an irrevocable right to do that, then you could renew another 50 grand for another. Uh, five years. Okay. If you hadn't got your consent in that time, it's happened to me twice.
0: <laughs> but it's true about the the uh, amount of information that is available, and I think people should take advantage of that. Oh, if, it,
1: if you don't, you're you're just selling yourself short. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's say one of our listeners wants to get
0: into um, property development as a business. Um, What are the five top things they need to know? Um,
1: So, in in no particular order. Okay. um, Be very realistic about the timelines for these, because this is not a... There is nothing get-rich-quick about property development. There is get-rich-reliably. You know, it's it's, it's a very... um, so it's a well-worn path mm. that if you follow a certain process and you get to understand what that process is, then um, that is it's, it's reliable but it's not quick. Okay? So the whole thing can take a good old of time. Um, the second thing is a lot of people in real estate or in property, you will hear bandit about the, the phrase uh, location, location, location. Um, you say it three times because it's really important. So it goes back to what I was saying earlier. You can build in the middle of nowhere, and you might get a person who wants to live in the middle of nowhere, but fundamentally, you need to think about... The location plays a huge part in any decision in terms of where you go, because you have to start with, as I said, most things in life, start with them in mind, and you generally don't go too far wrong. So work out who's going to live there and why they would want to live there. <laughs> um, so the location is really, really important. The trap that a lot of developers fall into... Um, particularly new ones but even seasoned ones because that's what they end up doing and it is the trap is the right word it is they try and do too much on their own okay and they think that they'll save money by doing that uh, facts the no matter all, all you get then is a job not a business yeah now it might be a well paying job but you know I, I know a number of, of developers who basically work on one project so they, they start looking for the project they find it they find it themselves they do the work themselves, they engage people as little as they possibly can to get mm. away with it, and then they site manage the site, or they actually work on site, they've got some construction related skills, and they sell it, and that cycle might take them four years, Right. and then they start again, so they've got some money that they've made at that point in time mm. to live, and then they start all over. Um, that would kill me. I just, I, I couldn't imagine the joy in doing that at all. There'd be no stimulation or challenge in doing that, but a lot of people do that, so they do a lot of things on their own. Development is a team sport, as I said earlier. You can do, I mean, currently at the moment, I would imagine between, with the things that I'm doing, uh, I, I I don't do anything out on my own. I do it all with partners. Okay. So we've we've obviously got some. We've got within development discovery. Mm-hmm. We've got our our projects and various things like that. And, and out with. So I think at the moment I'm I'm kind of involved in eighteen to twenty projects. Okay. And and that is yes, it's hard work. Keeps me busy. But every day is really interesting, really engaging. And somewhere on site getting billed out. And at that point, I kind of switch off quite a bit. Right. Um. I visit, I visit these sites once a month. Mm-hmm. Don't need to be there any more than that because of the way we structure things. Um, so that that's a big not putting a team in place and trying to do too many things. I guess because you, you need to
0: share the apps and the dance
1: as well. The, there is that whole support thing, which is great. Yeah. It's great not doing things on your own. Yeah. Equally, just putting a team together mm. And uh, you work more efficiently. And work more efficiently is important. So another thing that people don't understand, now I I fell into this trap, as I alluded to earlier before, Mm -hmm. was not understanding how you can fund things. So get yourself educated in terms of funding, finance. It's super important when it comes to development because a lot of people think that I could never do development because I don't have £5 million sat in the bank. Well, frankly, you don't need it. And actually, it can be a bit of a hindrance if you've got it you know, in terms of thinking properly, should sure. be efficient? Okay. Um, so what's that? Um, that's probably that's four. That's three. Yeah, I think we're four now. Right? Four? Okay. Because we were... Let's let's do a quick recap location. so that I can make sure that... So before location, there was making sure you understand timelines. Okay. How long things will... How long will things, things will take. And then there was location element. Mm-hmm. Then there was doing things on your own is, is a big thing. And then the... Then we spoke there about the funding scenario and how you really need to understand that and I think the other thing and I, I, I probably is it okay if I have six rather you, Cause, yeah, because sure. I think these two are, are really important um, one is that when you do property development you you engage people contractually mm-hmm. and it's really really important particularly when it comes to construction that you understand your construction contract mm-hmm. and you understand all the parameters mm-hmm. in there so for example Within that construction contract, there should very clearly be be some indications in terms of money that you can hold back, so retention mm-hmm. to your contractor, uh, just to make sure that he does the work right. Mm-hmm. So you maybe pay him ninety seven percent of the project value at the point at which he is practically complete. So every 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 payment cycle, you're putting back three five percent. Okay, and you're keeping that in the pot. It's not your money; it's his mm-hmm. uh, or hers, whoever the contractor is. Is their money, but you're keeping it just to make sure that the work gets finished properly and that you've got a fighting fund. So if you do have an argument, if there is a fallout, and that can't happen, believe it or not, um, then you've got the capacity and the scope that you can create a remedy using the funds for the contract. So if he doesn't come back and snag, for example, he doesn't do defects. So this is the retention period? So your, your retention period will be... So for me, it's like generally 5% on the project right. at practical completion when other members of my team have gone round and checked that the thing is done to a good standard mm-hmm. and it's practically complete, okay. then I release half of that money, so you get that 2.5% at that point in time, and another 2.5% I keep for a year. right? And then in that year, if there are any, if there are any defects that crop up, because mm-hmm. buildings settle, things like that need yeah. to be remedied and repaired, then um, that money is there as a... An incentive for mm-hmm. them to come back and complete the works. Okay. And defects liability period is 12 months. At the end of 12 months, you release yeah, them 2.5%. Oh, right. Or if they don't come back, you use that 2.5% to pay for the defects, remedying the defects. Is is
0: there any occasion where that can be longer, or is it just 12 months as a maximum?
1: Yeah, it's more likely to be shorter rather than longer. Shortly. I mean, I generally start a year. A, okay. lot of, uh, a lot of, you know, you'll find so you've got. Uh, a lot of the construction warranty uh, that you get now, whether well, it's NHBC, Checkmate, Premier Guarantee, these kind of things, um, they will give you a two-year period where you're now on used to be here. But retaining, retaining a chunk of money for, for two years mm-hmm. is is actually, in, in my mind, it's not fair and mm-hmm. track okay. Whereas if he deals with all these defects within the first six months mm-hmm. and uh, and you've got to a point where everything is broadly, carry, broadly carried through, broadly taken care of, then to be honest that's that's fair at least at that point but having that money is really important so uh, the other part within the contract is what happens if the contractor doesn't hit his timelines so what happens if you've got obligations Mm -hmm. at the back end so let's say you're you're building something and you're renting out. Yeah, that's your plan and he then is late so your contract has to take account of the fact that you're compensated for that Mm -hmm. if you don't put that into your contract that's all um, so time lag where you calculate, okay, so if if you're a week late, that's gonna cost me twelve hundred quid. Yeah. So therefore for every week that you're late, it's gonna cost you twelve hundred quid, not me. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. the contract. So he has a timeline he signs up to, you agree it, so he's got to go about his work efficiently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if everybody's professional and everybody does things as they're meant to do, then fine. Mm-hmm. Now we can get what happens if he can't carry out his work efficiently because of something that's not under his control. Mm. So, for example, um, it snows for 10 10 weeks and he can't get his men at the site. And he's got a mechanism within the contract that he can seek an extension of time. But it's got to be legitimised and you've got to understand what it is. And as developers, sometimes you've got to take these things in the chain. So understanding your contracts is really important. Uh, uh, And, again, it's not something that you absolutely need to understand on your own, although I make a point of doing it. But equally, I have solicitors in mind to be part part of it. Supporters. Um, And then the other thing is, because this is a business, it's not something that we're playing at. It's a business. Then you need to have systems. Mm -hmm. You need to have your checklists and everything like that. So that those would be the two things: understand your contracts and have systems and processes and procedures in place. Okay. If you're planning a renovation or you're moving into your first new home. Then the Akiva Toolkit could be the solution you need. With its
0: easy to use package of 10 documents, you are able to manage time, budget and the communication between your builders and you to ensure the project is complete to satisfaction first time round. The Akiva Toolkit saves you money and time. It's for the first time renovator and the renovator that wants to do things better the second time round. It's a fraction of the cost compared to paying for mistakes or repeating work that's already done. Go to akivatoolkit.com and get
1: your project off to a perfect start today.
0: So, Alan, um, let's just say one of our listeners or a few of our listeners want to get into property development. Um, as a business, what are the top five things they need to know, do you think?
1: Okay, so top five things so I would start off by saying um, be very deliberate and careful about your about managing your own expectations okay. in terms of the time that development can take so it can take a while right I mean I have a I have a you know, a project where it's taken me seven years to get on site mm-hmm. seven years seven years yeah okay now well worth it you know but Seven years from—that's from starting a project, from having that first idea—to okay. to actually putting a spade in the ground. Mm. Seven years. Yeah, planning got refused. Had to go through an appeal process. Had to kind of go right through the whole thing uh, to eventually put it in front of the desk mm. of the, um, the Scottish Minister, who agreed, who approved in our favour. So, but that took seven years as a process, mm. and there was a lot of money at risk at that point in time because paid a lot of fees out to get to that. Sure, yeah. So yeah, that is, that's an outlier. You know, normally things will take you a couple of years to get through the planning process from first, first start, mm-hmm. depending on where you fit in the local plan cycle. If you remember previously we talked about understanding that cycle and how it works. Yeah. So every area works at different, uh, has their plans drop in at different years. Mm-hmm. And so just understand where these things are. So, so be very aware of the fact that things can take... Longer than you would than most other vocations that you get involved in. Okay, but they equally are far more rewarding than most other vocations that you get involved in. So from that point of view, just be aware. That is that that would be the first thing. Overarchingly, I would say that. Mm-hmm. And then say um, to to be So location, location, location. People say that three times because it means it, it's really, really important. That's generally why things are repeated. Yeah. Is uh, your energy as you go through life. Um, you know, you start with the end in mind, so you don't think about what a nice field or what a nice building or what a nice town. You think in terms of who's going to live here and what product am I going to create that will entice them that I can, that I can optimise the value of the site and get and yet at the same time have a, a real steady stream of buyers mm-hmm. that will want to live in this location. Okay. So location is is, is really important. Um, a big mistake that people fall in, in property development. Mm-hmm. About the third thing, and this, this is really common, particularly if they have so, particularly people who come at this from a journey that started off doing vital and then maybe some HMOs, and then they think, Okay, I'm going to graduate to a development. So they apply the same mindset as so they do too many things on their own. Okay, um, property development now. Um, it almost has been complex, but it's a kind of particularly complex endeavour now to actually pull something together that at that, that once complies with all the planning regulations and then all the environmental laws and the ecological uh, issues that you can get involved in. Um, everything that's wrapped up in building regulations, you know, which is an ever-changing feast, it seems. They change every couple of years now. It's ridiculous. Really yeah. Yeah. Um, so being able to pull all that together, and keep a, keep an eye on the economy and where that's heading and how that's going to impact on your sales. Plus though we're actually understand how the finance works and everything like that. It's actually quite complex. So trying to do it all on your own is just daft. you know, property, as I alluded to earlier, is a team sport. Yeah. Property development is. And so you've got to have assemble a really good team. And you know that and understanding who those the members of those team are and what they each do and how much they cost. And how quickly they'll turn things around, and who they engage with in the local authority—all of that's really important. Okay. Um, and then I suppose the next thing that I would I would say because this is like this becomes really important. I, I saw this as a Trump iPhone. I didn't understand. After two thousand and eight nine, I had a few years of doing very little because I didn't truly understand how finance worked. Right. And there is finance for doing a of Yeah. And then there is finance for doing, you know, which might be a few hundred thousand pounds. And then you might be talking about a, a multi million or tens of million pounds of property development. Mm-hmm. And finance works completely differently. And so understanding how that finance, how finance is put into place, in, in place, where you get it from, how you actually, the things that you've got to do to structure it, and what your options are in that, is a really important thing to learn. So, I mean, one of the things I would say is absolutely get yourself educated in the world of finance. As it relates to property development, there's some great resources that are out there. there's great books you can buy. It's even some great courses. You know, we we do course on that. And then yeah. you know, like a big chunk of it is all about how you raise money um, and and do that professionally because that's really important. And then I suppose the, the other one. I probably want to see two things. So sure. I'll six if you're okay rather than yeah. five. Um, one would be what? So as your as your property development business moves on to actually uh, delivering something then you need to engage a number of people, but kind of chief amongst them your, your main contractor so the contractor that's going to deliver the project for you
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, who's a key part of your team she says well I have a contractor that does, everything. one contractor does everything on that, wherever it is Scotland, England, okay. Denmark no, that is no he's based to be Well, again, he understands Mm. the benefits from the next thing I'm going to come up with, which is system So, But this, understanding your contracts and how how they actually work is really important. So, you know, just a couple of examples of things that you you should be thinking about when you put in place a construction contract. So, one is, um, what happens if the contract runs over? And so... Here's the mechanism for dealing for that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If it goes over its time, because you will then want to impose penalties on the contractor because it'll be cost you money. Sure. Not only in terms of what money you might be earning, but also the money you're carrying in terms of the interest costs. So mm-hmm. you've got to factor all that in and do the sums, figure out how much it costs you a week, and that's the number that you put in your contract. Mm-hmm. So that and that becomes very you know highly kind of default resistant from a from our um, contractor's point of view. He wants to make sure that he finishes on time. Yeah because he's got that ticking bomb on the background that's going to erode his profits. Mm-hmm. But you also need a mechanism, a fair mechanism, whereby if a contractor needs to extend time because of things that are right with his control, mm-hmm. um, then he has a mechanism to do that um, and so he has to understand how all that comes together. Um, and then another thing could be um, how do you deal with uh, variations to the contract? So what's the mechanism? What's the cost mechanism that says you, as developer, once you see things start to come together, you think actually, you know what? what? I don't want want that wall there. I want it here Mm. because I'll do this, or you want to change this scenario. So you need a mechanism to allow to take care of that in a way that it's not open to abuse from the contractor Mm -hmm. or from yourself. Yeah. Um, And then retention. So how do you actually deal with defects in a project, and so you gently hold some money back through the life of the project? and then how you deal with that so all that is, is kind of in there these are all things that you have to understand as part of your, your contract So say understanding contracts is important again, you can have somebody on your team who understands that for you mm. that you can lean on but in all these things I say it, it, I've always taken the view that in every process of the way I need to understand which every member of the team is doing which means I need to understand that thing so my knowledge base is probably and it's, it's true, most developers have been doing it for a while. You've got very broad but shallow uh, knowledge mm. base. So you can converse with the guys who've got a very narrow but deep knowledge base. And that's what you want. So that's, that's, that's your optimal plan. plan. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there is that. And then finally, because property development is that is best as a business, then you need to treat it as a business. So you need to have systems in place, procedures. Checklist you need to you need to be spent if you're spending all your time just nose to the grindstone, then you're never gonna really grow your business or get yourself to a point where the business in and of itself has some intrinsic value. Mm. And so these would be the kind of key things that I would say that you need to you need to look out for and learn.
0: I mean along the process I'm sure you've known I'm sure yourself have made the odd mistakes. Not the odd one. Yeah,
1: dozens, hundreds. Could you give us a couple of like the typical mistakes that people make? So typical mistakes that I see, or those that I did when I was early, so I suppose I mean, I'll move on. one of the main ones is falling in love with a project before you do your due diligence. Okay. A lot of people think they have this deal and it's the only deal that's ever going to come by their way. It's not, there are hundreds of out there. Yeah, you just got to look. And it's 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 like it's not the deal. It's it's not it's not picking a deal. It's picking the deal. Mm-hmm. So it's doing your diligence. So that's something that we have, you know, we spend as much time on that on a sort of pre-offer stage as we do any other time. We try and you know, we so with our partners, the things that we would typically do is we would spend money early, mm-hmm. and and that money is always at risk. Because your answer might be on spending that money, it might be no. We're not going to offer this. We're not going to take it any further. But you're far better off spending, let's say five to ten grand, annually, than committing to a project where your downside might be that you lose five hundred grand. You know, kind of projects. So there's a huge difference, mm. and and so little chunks of money you can you can deal with, and you get very efficient then. And the other thing is you'll learn so much in, in the process of doing each of these things. Yeah. So but yeah, we so we would typically get a valuation done right at the start. We would get an architect to sketch it. Well obviously that it, it presumes that you've got a sketch in place so that your value can value what you've got. Um, so you you engage with the architect, you've got a conversation with your planner. Mm. Now, if you have relationships and these guys know how you're going to work, they will work on the basis that they will so the guys I've got will do the sketches, those initial viability things won't cost you. Uh, they'll give you that opinion they'll give you that sketch that little bit of time see if it's viable on the basis that if they know that you're going to deliver projects ultimately and they're going to get the work then that's yeah. uh, that's really important so yeah I think that's that's a, a big mistake that I see people not doing the diligence properly and not spending a little bit of money not getting a cost plan done early which is what we we'll always do so that, that's important um, I guess the other things that I've seen that, that, that people will do is one I alluded to earlier. It, so I said get your team in place, but the, the flip side of that is not put a team in place and try to do too much yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that that's just that is the therein lies the road to ruin. You know, in, in my mind. So those are the two those two I think are the are the most common ones all over. People want to save a few quid in their mind save. It's always the very comments. Always end up so, Alan, in large-scale property development,
0: what do you think are what are the biggest challenges that people come up against?
1: Um, define large scale, just so as I'm, I'm kind of on it. Because if you said, if if I said large, large scale was well, that thirty to fifty mm-hmm. uh, units. So if we were talking about that, okay. Um, a large scale is nearly always all the stuff that you've got to do beforehand Mm -hmm. in terms of your challenges it is it is mind-numbing now if i go back 25 years ago when i started you could more or less you could more or less create a property development in uh you could do the whole thing cover up pretty much all that you needed to do you could get done with two or three reports and surveys and an appraisal that was done on on an e-film sheet of paper. You could scribble it all out and you would know where you were. And they weren't absolutely fine. We've now got a building regulation and planning regulation regime in this country that means, and and part of what you get, so I do get part of it, but I do hark back to sure. times yeah. before when it wasn't as as complex. Mm. The number of things that you've got to do, the number of reports and surveys that you've got to get, the things that you've got to satisfy, mm. the legislation over things that frankly nobody really cared about before. You know, if 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 a bat happened to be roosting in the tree that you were going to be tearing down, then that bat would find another tree. Yeah, they always do. Mm. You know, but now to actually to go through that process, you've got to do You've got to spend so much money to get to that point, whereas before you just, you know, be kind of not that tree down. Yes, sure. you can, because it's not got a, a tree preservation order on it, so yeah, you can clear that, it's no problem. Or that barn I'd like to knock down, you know, it's an old derelict barn, yeah, but in my house, you know, my house, European protected species, <laughs> you know, so you have, and that's you know, I'm not in any way being anti that or anything um, like that. I guess everyone's got its place. Sure. I think we've got to the point now where it is just it's just gone too far and okay. So those can be some real challenges. Um, I think building regulations have come to the point now where, and this is maybe just a slight personal run. Sure. So if I look at the houses that I built 25 years ago and look at the houses that I'm building now, mm. um. I was able to offer a really well-built house that was that worked and worked really well. Mm-hmm. We've now made houses too um, airtight, too warm. Okay. Um, you know, and where we're sat just now, this is this is a year old this apartment. Um, if you don't have all the doors open or windows open, you absolutely cook. Sure. And that can be a dull day. Yeah, yeah. Because you're probably sitting with you know five hundred mil insulation in the walls. Or you think of some of these walls? Mm-hmm. It's incredible to meet the current building regulation standards and um, get where they go. But by the same token, there is a drive in this country that everybody forgets, which is well, let's try and make housing affordable. Yeah. You start specifying that much insulation. which 25 years ago. We had that much insulation. It's not affordable. You know, we were putting 50 mm in the walls, mm. on the outside walls, 25 mil in between bathrooms and kitchens, and and that was your lot in terms of insulation. Mm. And you'd have like 100 mil in the uh, in the ceiling. So in the in, in your roof, and that'd be it. you've now got 400 to 500 mil on top of your rafters. You've then got the eaves having like 250 rigid insulation in it, and tightly packed there's no way for air to go Yeah, you know Victorians built houses are still standing still look fabulous and will be here forever on no foundations or very little foundations mm-hmm. and leaky as hell it's actually in case windows there are gaps yeah. like that so yeah, you can yeah, always yeah, have yeah. that airflow in in buildings and we're, we're storing up think. and then everything has a consequential impact yeah. So you you then because because the house is so warm you have to then spend more money to hit whole house ventilation systems. Yeah. 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 Um, and so to get to then hit the regulations, which is none of these things are, are necessary. I don't think at all. Um, and I think when you when you look at that that that's a big challenge because that then imposes a, a unit cost of construction. So I remember when I started building, I was building at about fifty pound a foot. Um, whereas now it's really hard to build for and and, and some of the core things, inflation wise, might have gone up twenty percent over that period in time. Yeah, sure. Bricks and stuff like that. Yeah. Maybe slightly more. because yeah. uh, in the last week will have gone up quite a bit. But it's now almost impossible on a large scale development to kind of build for less than one forty a foot. And and ultimately, the the only person that suffers from that, because the developer still has his margin. Yeah. You know, are still going to make your 20% regardless, and you're just going to factor it into your price, mm. and nobody else is doing any different. So house prices go up, land prices go up because house prices go up, and you create this this kind of spiral that is it generates some form of economic growth. Yeah. So you get, in boom times, people are buying. So long as every part of the economy works, so banks are lending, you've got the necessary skills in place that can actually deliver the, the projects on time mm-hmm. and, and I think that everything is okay. The minute you've dysfunction in that market, like we had from 2008 to 2013-14 mm-hmm. where banks just weren't lending not in the numbers that were required and uh, the amounts that were required then you had to complete dysfunction and things slowed down. So rather than building 300,000 houses a year which is what this country currently needs yeah. we're building 150,000 to 180,000 a year yeah, that's nowhere near it. Yeah. And, and so you then have this problem of, of kind of homelessness hmm. or or just not having enough so you've got this pent-up demand and so we, we need to build three hundred thousand a year but we're so every year you're just adding that number. And it's getting more and more unachievable because planning policy makes it bloody difficult, pardon my French, to to <coughs> release land, enough land, hmm. to actually create these buildings. And and at some point, somewhere down the road we have as a country to make a decision based on you know what do we actually want do we want these you know, these tiny little settlements which is there's no danger anybody's going to build anywhere near me thanks very much mm-hmm. or do we impose upon them through government policy the fact that yeah we've, we've got to move with it we kind of have if, if that place it, if it has green and pleasant land surrounding it but it happens to be right next to the centre of employment that people want, in- then I'm sorry, we've got to build there. You know, if it's out in the if it's out in the middle of nowhere, and you want the green, pleasant land, then that's fine. Fill your boots. That's yeah. absolutely fine. Mm. But our settlements have to evolve. I mean, it, that that is a big challenge. I mean, over the next 50 years, biggest challenge is going to be how you actually create sustainable economic growth whilst having these kind of policies in place. at Some point they have to give and who knows what they're going to do with the building
0: regulations and everything else in place as well. Well, hopefully at some point, come some common sense will
1: prevail, but I'm not sure.
0: <laughs> it's been great interviewing you. You're a wealth of knowledge. Um, I've yeah. really enjoyed this. Now, I've definitely learned a few things as well. Good. So, All thank right. you very much. I hope you listen and Enjoy it. Thanks a lot.